Jesus says, when you are invited to a wedding banquet, don't sit in the place of honor, but go and sit down at the lowest place. Jesus also says, whenever you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your family, but invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Those are pretty clear instructions. And those instructions probably made the people who heard them pretty uncomfortable because Jesus wasn't speaking in a synagogue or from the pulpit, but at a dinner party where he looked around and saw the kind of people he told his host not to bother inviting. But today I wonder whether that moment, that teaching of Jesus, whether it's supposed to be earthly instructions or heavenly advice. When does Jesus tell us something about how we're supposed to live here and now? And when is Jesus giving us a glimpse of what awaits us in heaven? It's not always easy to tell where the earthly advice and the heavenly teaching begin and end. Because sometimes it's our knowledge of God that shapes the way we live our lives. But other times, it's the way we live our lives that teach us something about God. It was, again, the Sabbath, just like in last week's gospel lesson. Now, this probably wasn't the same Sabbath or the same synagogue. Last week, Jesus called the leader of the synagogue a hypocrite and invoked the law of Moses in a way that made that leader look foolish and rather pretentious. I doubt Jesus hung around long enough to share a Sabbath meal with him. But the setting isn't all that different. In the opening verse of this gospel lesson, Luke tells us that it was the Sabbath and that Jesus had gone to the home of a religious leader for a dinner. But Luke also tells us right from the beginning that everyone at the Sabbath dinner was watching Jesus that all the eyes were fixed on him, scrutinizing his every word, his every move. But then our gospel lesson skips five verses. You might not have noticed it because the way the text holds together, you might not have realized that something happened, except perhaps you heard that at first they were looking at him, but by the time we pick up in verse 6, it's Jesus' turn to look at them. More about that in a minute. But let me remind you what was skipped. It's the same thing we heard last week. It's the Sabbath, and Jesus heals someone who is sick. I think the committee that put together our lectionary probably skipped those five verses to save you from having to hear the same sermon two weeks in a row. But I do think it's helpful for us to hear that when all of the eyes were fixed on Jesus, that is the moment that Jesus took to step out beyond the traditions and assumptions of his people to offer a new, powerful teaching about where we find God in the world. Jesus heals, this time, a man whose limbs were swollen with edema. Again, it was the Sabbath when no such healing was supposed to be done. So when Jesus heals the man, as everyone looks on, Jesus seems to be saying, I have something to show you about what is right and what is good. Jesus explains his action using almost the exact same logic he used last week. If your child or your ox fell into a well, God forbid, 
Who would wait to pull them out? You'd pull them out immediately, even if it was the Sabbath day. Just so, we must know that it is good and right for us to heal someone who is sick on the Sabbath. When he said it, no one responded with a word. Everyone seemed to accept in their silence that this rabbi had something important and right to say. And once Jesus had claimed that authority, he turned his gaze upon them, scrutinizing their actions, and used that as a way to teach them something about how God is to be found among us, even as something as ordinary as a Sabbath meal. When Jesus saw how everyone had taken their seat at the table, waiting until everybody had claimed for themselves a spot at the table, Jesus said, you know, when you go to a wedding banquet, don't sit in the place of honor because the host might come to you and say, oh no, that seat is reserved for someone else. You've got to sit way down there and everyone who sees you would look at you with shame and contempt. Instead, Jesus says, start in the lowest place. That way your host will come to you and lift you up and everyone in the room will say, ooh, she must be really important. At first, that seems like pretty good, reasonable party etiquette. I don't know about you, but if I went to the wedding of a distant family friend, a family I hadn't seen maybe in five or six years, I'm not going to sit at the head table next to the wedding party. I know that spot's not for me. We all know that. But what we might not know is that Jesus' audience knew that thing, that social understanding that we know so well. They knew it even better than we 21st century Episcopalians know about social graces. Because in the ancient Near Eastern world, any sort of formal dinner setting was an exercise in honor culture. You didn't need to find your place at the table to know where you were supposed to sit. Everyone knew. Everyone knew that the rich and powerful and well-connected set up front where the action was, while everybody else, less well-connected, less affluent, less important, found a spot lower down. Back then, knowing your place was as obvious as knowing your own name. But when we start to take a closer look at this simple teaching, we begin to see that Jesus must have a different reality in mind, one that starts with the dinner party we know, but very quickly becomes so strange that it almost doesn't fit in this world. Back then, if you went to a wedding banquet, you might be willing to stretch a little bit beyond your station, maybe sitting a few places closer to the host than you would be expected to sit so that those around you would say, oh, look, she's really moving up in the world. She deserves our esteem, doesn't she? But no one is naive enough to sit in the place of honor. We don't need Jesus to tell us not to make that mistake. And do we really think that a busy host focused on the people to the right and the left, often has the time to see that person hiding in the shadows in the back of the room in order to draw that person up higher. Do we really think that we're supposed to sit in the lowest place just so the host can bring us up higher and everyone will think better of us? Surely that's not what Jesus means. And the second part of this teaching, the one directed specifically at the host, seems to confirm that Jesus has something else in mind. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, he says, don't invite your friends. Don't invite your family. 
Don't invite your rich neighbors. Don't invite anyone who could ever pay you back. Instead, Jesus says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, people who could never pay you back so that your reward will be waiting for you at the time of the resurrection. Now, back then, those were shocking words, but perhaps not for the reason we assume. Back then, in that honor culture, if you received an invitation to dinner, you were expected to respond with a reciprocal invitation. No exceptions allowed. Now, I might not invite you over to my house so that you would ask me around to yours as well, but it's hard to imagine in that world a situation in which I would invite you over and you would not return the favor. It's just unthinkable unless the person you invite isn't able to return the favor at all because they don't have the means to host a dinner party. Normally, though, a host would know not to burden such a guest with that kind of invitation because the expectations that the reciprocal invitation would be extended were so strong and so great that to ask someone to come over whom we all knew could never repay the favor was really to shame them. A way to say, ha, you'll never be able to invite me over, will you? But that's exactly what Jesus tells these people to do. That when they throw any kind of party, any kind of get-together at all, it's exactly the people who would never be able to repay the favor whom we're supposed to invite to our table. Because Jesus knows something about God and God's table that isn't the same as the kind of table fellowship we normally experience in this world. What if God's great and glorious banquet with all of humanity is the sort of place where you don't have to stretch any higher from your station in order to receive the honor of your host? What if your place at God's table doesn't depend in any way on your status in the world's eyes. And what if an invitation to God's great triumphant wedding feast is one that you are never expected to repay? What if our God loves the world and everyone in it without ever asking for anything in return? How wonderful and magnificent are those truths about our God. But those are really hard truths to learn when we live in a world where they seem utterly foreign to us. How are we supposed to learn that that's the way our God is? Sometimes what we know about God shapes the way we live in this life. But other times, we have to change the way we do ordinary things in order that by doing them differently, they might teach us something about God who is waiting for us and loving us. Why do you think we gather at this particular table every week using those words of invitation that we know and love so deeply? 
Why do we come to this Sunday banquet week after week where everyone is welcome and everyone is given a seat of honor regardless of what they have to give back? This holy table is not only a reflection of what we believe about God, the one who welcomes us all and honors us all and never expects anything in return, that table is also the place where we learn how to believe those things about God. We need help learning those divine truths that sound too big, too amazing, too radical to be true. And that is why we practice God's great wedding banquet, God's great and glorious feast right here every single week. This table can never become a place where only some of God's people are welcome, where worldly status determines who gets the important seat, because not only would that altar then fail to represent the heavenly banquet that it must always represent for us, But even worse, those of us who gather around it would lose the chance to learn from experience just how much God loves every one of us. And don't we all need just a little more of that? Thanks be to God. Amen.